Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, I'm glad to talk to you today on the Good Life. This is Matt Carpenter, and had this podcast for a little over a year now, and it's been good. I thoroughly enjoyed it, been able to interview a lot of interesting guests, but I've had some people ask, why don't you talk a little bit just about some of what you read on your own and some of the things that that you talk about we'd like to know more about. And part of the goal of this podcast has always been to help people live a good life. What does that mean? Well, it applies to every area. And some of it is just things that that are interesting. We all enjoy talking to people who love things that we love or who know things that we'd like to know more about. So that's something I would like to do. Not that I know a whole lot about a lot, but there are things that I read that I'd love to share with people. And when I have a conversation with several people about the same topic, it makes sense to just put it on a podcast. So I'm going to try this, and if you like it, Please let me know. If you don't like it, let me know. I'd love to hear feedback on what you think. So I'm going to transition now to this topic today, and it is on magic. At church several weeks back, I preached a sermon uh, on magic, and I don't remember the title. In my notes, it's Beware of Bad Magic. Uh, I think in the sermon itself, it was uploaded to our church podcast as enjoying or living in deeper magic or learning deeper magic, something like that, which for many people that in and of itself means I should probably not be allowed to preach anymore because pastors don't preach on magic. But I said at the beginning of the sermon, magic is inescapable. If you believe in the God of Scripture, if you believe that Yahweh created the world from nothing and that he gave us, he sent Jesus to die for us and Jesus died and was resurrected. Resurrection is something none of us have ever seen before. We've never seen a resurrected body and sent his spirit, the spirit of the living God to dwell in and among us. You can't help but believe in magic. The supernatural exists. And in the series in Leviticus, God was warning his people in ancient times to not give in to the temptation to magic. So I'm just going to read not everything that I read a couple of weeks back, but Leviticus 19.26, you shall not eat of anything with a blood, neither shall you use any enchantment or observe times. You should not round the corners of your head, neither mar the corners of your beard. Don't make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, or print marks, or that is, tattoos. I am the Lord. Verse 31, regard not those that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Then in chapter 20, 1 through 9, he warns the people about not offering their children to the god Moloch, because That was a common practice back then. If you wanted something, you give your children to Moloch and you receive what you want. Then in chapter 20, verse 26 and 27, you you shall be holy unto me. I've removed you. I've severed you from other people. Your mind, if a man has a familiar spirit or is a wizard, he should be put to death. So a, a clear explanation, steer clear of magic. Now in between these chapters from 19 and then verse 20, uh, chapter 20, 26, and 27, there are commands about warning them to steer clear of sexual sin. That doesn't make any sense to us today. We wonder, why does he do that? But there are clear ties. And, And again, if you want to hear the sermon itself, please go back and listen to it. It's on the church website, on the podcast, so you can hear that. It's about a little under 30 minutes, and would give a, a, a better exegetical explanation of what's going on there. But 
the definition I gave of magic is not what we would expect if we think about magic today. Most of the time we think about magic in something like the movie, The Lord of the Rings, not the book, but the movie, or uh, certainly the Harry Potter series, or if you, you, know, you read other fantasy, modern fantasy novels, that's the you know, idea that you, you get. It's something that you have someone who waves a wand and boom, something happens and it appears. Okay, but let me ask you this. If you lived during the time of the prophet Elijah and you saw a prophet who calls out to God in the middle of a drought and he's poured water, he's soaked an altar in water and fire, lightning, something comes down and consumes that altar. What are you going to think? Are you going to walk away and say, yep, another day at the altar? Probably not. If you're walking around first century Palestine and there is this interesting rabbi who is always on the case of the somewhat oppressive religious Jewish religious system at the time, and you see a blind man and that everybody in the village knows this guy has been blind for years and this rabbi walks up to him and he spits in his eyes and the man is able to see and you know he was he was blind you knew it and then you see that now the man can see or if your friend was a leper and now he was healed by the rabbi. And these are not kept quiet. These are things that everyone is testifying to. What do you say? Yeah, well, nothing much here. No, you acknowledge that there is something going on. Of course you do. Everybody would. Well, with that, why do we deny that that exists now? The definition I gave of magic was this, and, and I borrowed this, uh, I adapted it from an article by a guy I'll talk about in a few minutes named John Michael Greer, and he gives this definition, and again I've changed a little bit, but magic is seeking to change reality in accordance to one's will. Seeking to change reality in accordance to one's will. Now when I say reality, I don't mean that you are changing life as it exists in time, that you can go back in time or you can do you know, anything like that. Not at all. When I say a change in reality, I mean the way things normally are. Changing that way, let's say that you are, just make it easy, you're sick and you want a change in reality because you don't want to be sick anymore. So what do you do? You take medicine. You go to the doctor, you've taken medicine. What is that medicine? It's probably a drug. Drug in its Greek name is from pharmakia. Pharmakia is also what scripture, a, a type of what scripture refers to as witchcraft. When we are warned against witchcraft in the New Testament, we are warned against pharmakia. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying don't take medicine. We need to take medicine. But you take medicine because you want a change in what's going on. So, a thousand years ago, if you needed, if you were sick, if you were infirmed, and you needed healing, you would pray, and you would potentially go to your priest. And maybe you would go to someone who had skilled knowledge of these things. You see, the pharmacist of the first century, excuse me, the pharmacist of our century were the those who dealt in magic in the first century. Magic was the understanding of wisdom, a certain type of wisdom or knowledge. The word magic itself 
is from the same root word, the Indo-European root word, meaning to have power. So when you understand magic as simply the seeking to change reality in accordance to one's will, that opens up what magic is. We can't assume that the people in the Old Testament live just like we do, that they had the same modern views on everything that we do. But think like this. Just like we would be surprised if we could go back in time and we could see the, the miracles of the Old Testament. If you went back in time and you tried to explain to the Apostle James that in 2,000 years you could talk to someone who lived a thousand miles away through a screen, through something, for him it would be like a mirror. So you would describe it like, I can talk to someone through a mirror who lives thousands of miles away whenever we want to talk. My guess is he would probably warn you of the dangers, the occultic dangers that you're playing with. Now I'm not accusing anyone who uses uh, Google Hangouts or Zoom of being an occultist. But that's how we look at it. So, so moving on then from there, I, I think we can establish then from what I've said thus far that magic exists the way that the ancients would have viewed it. Well, let's talk about the first book that has been really helpful and it's interesting. I actually read this book after I preached the sermon. And, and I can do that because it's short. It's only 84 pages, but it's by Dr. Paul Tyson. Uh, Tyson's a philosopher and professor in Australia, a uh, Christian. And in his view, excuse me, his book is called, let me try to bring it up here, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic. Again, it's short and I highly recommended. There's a lot of really valuable solid stuff in this book. It will help you understand what magic looks like. But the thing that I learned, again, after the sermon, which I'm glad I read it afterwards because I probably would have tried to put too much in the sermon and that would not have worked very well. It was hard enough just to, to, to keep it to a, a minimum amount of time. But Tyson presents four views of magic, and these views have worked themselves out through history. Now, he admits in the book that he took these four views from a professor at Cambridge named Dr. John Milbank. And just as an interesting tie-in, uh, John Milbank was Peter Lightheart's doctoral advisor when Dr. Lightheart was at Cambridge. Many of you know Dr. Lightheart. He's preached at the church a few times, and you know I'm friends with him and, and have appreciated him. But so anyway, so there's an interesting uh, another tie, the, the, the degrees of you know the, the different degrees of separation. But still, so Tyson refers to Milbank's view, but it, whoever, uh, no, no matter what, four views of magic. So the first view is animist view, the animist view of magic. The animist view says that. All living things on earth are God or God's little g. Everything that's around you has some sort of deification. Trees, water, rocks, animals, bushes, plants, sky, sun, they all are God. So there's God's everywhere. So when you look out at nature, you don't just see, oh, that's a tree. You see that's a God in that tree. Now, of course, with that comes the view that I've got to keep this one happy and that one happy and all these other gods happy and it's quite burdensome. 
but it is a it is a supernatural view and animism was practiced throughout the world for thousands of years so that's the first view of magic the second view Tyson presents is participation participation is the view that all things receive their being their not just their life but their very existence from in some degree to some degree they participate in one God so this is largely taken from Plato but it's not solely Greek myth we have this type of language in scripture for example in Colossians Paul when referring to Jesus says in him we live and move and have our being what's that that's participatory language we participate in Christ everything we have is from him so it's God made us but he didn't just make us he didn't just make the world and then make man and say all right I'm gonna just see how this goes and then occasionally he sees oh he shouldn't have done that zap gonna kill him uh, oh so the world's gonna be you want to be like that I'm gonna flood you all I'm gonna save Noah and his family or right. no it's not like that at all he is constantly giving life he upholds us again this is from scripture by the word of his power so we participate in the life of God everything is held together whether animate or inanimate by the power by the being of God God himself is reality he doesn't just have reality he is reality and so everything that's real must in some way receive their being their gift from him and full disclosure this is my personal view and it's not rare it's a pretty common view but it was more common several hundred years ago probably as, as long as you go back over 500 years ago it's more common then than now but still it's a theory of participation that's, that's the second view but then over time we came to, to view our life as well we have life here and yes God is up there but he made the world and God is supernatural he's all-powerful but we are natural creatures and so, so this third view is that of the supernatural versus the natural so this third view sees there being a line this line between God between uh, the supernatural realm God angels the demons and everything and what's natural what's material what we can see so everything we can see that has existence well they're just you know, we receive what we have from God but he's not as personally involved there's supernature and then on another plane there is nature and this is this and has been the view of people since really post medieval times uh, it was growing during the time you know even before the Reformation and it came to its own really at the time of the scientific revolution when we started observing that well there are certain natural laws like gravity and things like that which of course the ancients knew that gravity existed no one jumped off a cliff and said maybe I'll float this time uh -uh. so they have always known that there's natural laws but we started studying them and saying you know this just happens and it doesn't require God to make it happen so, so you get this division and, and of course Tyson does a really good job of explaining the division but miracles then are seen as God doing something unnatural something that we don't expect in nature so let's say you know 
normally people who get sick, they may get better, they may not, but then there are certain sicknesses that are really bad and people don't recover from. So then if someone who has a terminal sickness is better, well, that's because Yahweh decided to intervene supernaturally. We've heard of the term divine intervention when someone who is sick and likely going to die is healed. We say, well, that's divine intervention. Well, it's true. God did come and heal that person. But the very idea that he comes from this other realm and fixes a problem and then goes back to, to letting things just play out as they are, that's really a nicer version of deism where God is a divine watchmaker and he does what he does and created everything and then just sits back and watches uh, pun unintended there he observes while everything happens so he made it and then he watches and sees how it goes and he may intervene every now and then and of course the incarnation is such a are a really amazing thing here because, well, he, the, the, the divine comes into the natural world. But then what do we see then as the, the ascension of Christ? Well, that's when he goes back. So this is where you get to, you know, that the heaven is way off somewhere and then everything else is here. So that, that's supernatural versus natural. And most of us, that's what we're raised in. If you're a modern Christian, you have this supernatural versus natural mindset unless you are working against the grain. The fourth view is uh, that Tyson presents is the anti-magic view. Because uh, eventually, once people divided the supernatural from the natural, well then people start to say, well now that we have drugs and we know somebody's got a headache, you don't have to pray. Take Tylenol. Or, you know, there's an old joke that a guy said uh, prisoner escaped from jail. He gets his foot stuck in a railroad track and he asks God, please, if you will just get me out of here, if you will, because the train's coming. He sees a train coming and he's afraid. He said, if you will just let me get, get my foot out I will go on the right path. I'll never commit another crime. Blah, 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 blah. So he makes a promise, and the train's coming. He's trying really hard. Finally, gets his foot out just in time as the train goes by. And he looks up and says, Thank you, God, but I took care of it myself. So thank you. I appreciate it anyway. Well, that's how we view, and many in the secular world view things. And that, that's kind of, that shows you the, the decline from supernatural versus natural to anti-magic, we see everything now as, well, I can handle this. So anti-magic just removes the supernatural part and says we don't need God. There's no need for Logos. Or maybe they would say man is the Logos. Man holds everything together. We are the highest form of existence. Well, I got news for you. If man is the highest form of existence, there are people who believe that something greater than man can be created. Uh, Kevin Kelly, who works at Silicon Valley, in his book, What Technology Wants, he says that what we're, what we're working toward is the technium. And the technium is this radical, great machine that will liberate everyone. That will be, it's kind of, you know, this transhumanist idea that he's presenting. But he wants there to be something and believes there's something greater than individual humans. And that's what happens when there is no supernatural Man craves the supernatural. So he, you know, this anti-magic view that says all we can see is just the materials that, that we observe. Well, you're eventually 
going to have man wanting something. And you do, perhaps at times then, you go back in the circle. Those who were anti-magic, who believe that there's nothing out there, it's only what we can see, well then, because people crave something greater than themselves, some return to animism. And we actually see that. We see the rise of witchcraft. We see the rise of wizardry. We see more and more people who are pursuing this. I mean, there is worldwide a group of witches who meet online right now every week and they chant a hex, a spell, against Vladimir Putin in Russia. Now, I don't know how big this is, and I, I, I heard it from another author that, that I listened to, so you know, I, I didn't want to take the time to pursue you know, weird spells that the world is trying to put on Vladimir Putin. I uh, did, just didn't want to do that. So you know, take that for what it's worth. But there is a rise in magic and the interest in magic. Now again, as I've already said, it's always existed. And God in Leviticus warned his people, you should not be involved in this. You should not give yourself, particularly you should not give yourself to magic that is outside of what I've commanded. Because there is a divine wisdom that God gives. There's divine wisdom that he teaches. And if we ignore that, if we refuse that, we're going to pursue it a different way. And that's where we come to, a, to another author who is interesting. And while I, I recommend Paul Tyson's book, uh, the, the Seven Brief Lessons on Magic, I'm going to introduce this guy and one more. Another one I recommend that you should read them. If you're interested in this type of thing, it's okay, but I'll say it with this caution. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing the Screwtape Letters, which is in, in Screwtape Letters, he takes the, the name of uh, a demon, Uncle Screwtape, whose nephew, Wormwood, he's training. And so, so Screwtape Letters is from the perspective of a devil. But Lewis warned that we should not become too enamored with evil. And that is a warning I would give you as well. And I have to remember this myself. It's fascinating to us because it's about this realm that we've, frankly, it's just been neglected. It's treated like, well, good little boys and girls don't ever think about these things. We just go to Sunday school and go to church and read our Bibles and pretend that nothing else supernatural exists. So we can't do that, but neither should we become enamored. So there's the warning. And here's the author, though, John Michael Greer. Now, Greer is unique. He is a druid. He is a mason. And he considers himself a wizard. And he's, but, but he's written at times about ideas that most people will not touch. So I remember him in 2017 uh, being interviewed on a podcast, and he was talking, I mean, he's, it sounds like uh, a supporter of Donald Trump, but he was talking in a way that I honestly had not heard anyone speak before. He was talking about President, at the time, President Trump as winning because of magic. So this is really what started me thinking about this, but I didn't have paradigms to understand the idea, so I just kind of shut it down, didn't think about it much more after that. I only listened to the podcast halfway through and said, this is weird, and, and moved on to something else. But I came across his work again on the, the British online magazine Unheard. Unheard is conservative. It has varying views under the under conservative. It's not religious, but they just have a, a lot of different authors, some of whom disagree. But it's, uh, it's a place for free speech. I'll, I'll say it that way. 
But anyway, John Michael Greer in the uh, Unheard website had an article called Will Magic Defeat America's Elites? A former, former Grand Archdruid on political spells. Now I mentioned this in the sermon, but spells, the word spell in its original meaning is telling a story. It's a, it's a story, it's a proclamation, it's saying something that will cause a change. So he, he begins his article with, with this. He said, let's start with a straightforward example. At some point during the last 24 hours, you probably saw an advertisement for fizzy brown sugar water. That's not what the ad called it, of course. And that distraction, think of it as a spell of invisibility, is an important part of the sorcery we're discussing. Notice that the ad didn't try to convince you of the alleged merits of the syrupy goo it was pushing at you, nor did it aim anything else at your rational mind. No, the ad deployed imagery meant to set off emotional reactions that had nothing to do with the product. Here's a group of people, still quoting Greer, here's a group of people on a billboard. They're young, they're attractive, they look healthy, they're wearing clothes that tell you they have plenty of money, they're having a great time, they're all clutching cans of fizzy brown sugar water. If I tried to convince you that guzzling the contents of one of those cans will make you young, attractive, and the rest, you'd roll your eyes. Yet that's the message the deep levels of your mind absorb and your behavior shifts in response. In magical terms, the ad cast a spell on you. That is, it caused strange caused change in your consciousness in accordance with the advertiser's will, end quote. Now you say, man, that's a bunch of hooey. I know what an advertisement for Pepsi or for Coke does. I don't like Pepsi or Coke, so I'm immune. Okay, granted. But think about advertisement. If someone is advertising cologne, how many of you would buy, men especially here, how many of you would buy cologne just because you like it? And how many of you buy cologne because your wife likes it? Maybe you don't wear cologne. Uh, Frankly, not as many people I don't think do. But what do cologne commercials, how do they advertise? Do you have someone, middle-aged, uh, moderate, you know, mo moderate flabbiness on there with a unibrow who says, this potion makes you smell good. Please buy it. And that's the end. Does that do anything? <laughs> we know the answer. Of course not. So what does it do? Well, it, it repels you because there's, there's no power in that. But that's not what cologne commercials have. Instead, or you could say toothpaste. If you don't want to say cologne, say toothpaste. What do you have? You have a person using this product and the person is of attractive appearance. And what happens? If you're a guy, it shows at some point a woman who's also attractive coming up and probably kissing him. Or at the very least, being drawn to him. That, everybody, is a spell. That's exactly what that is. It's trying to cause a change in reality according to one's will. The question then is, whose will? The will of the ones who are casting it, the commercial, but also the advertisers, but then your will as well. And that's where magic really starts to work. The one who uses it, think of the serpent in the garden, the one who uses it 
doesn't appeal to you saying, would you please do this because it's going to help me? No, they use it because it, uh, it, it does help them, but they uh, use it to appeal to you, saying, I want to help you. Let me help you. That is the message. It's really hard to let go of that message. And so Greer talks about this, and he says, usually we are in, we live in a, a world, and he talks about just the last hundred years or so, when magic has increased. It's usually during periods of economic stagnation. When the economy is down, magic, people trying to aim, purposely practicing witchcraft, wizardry, stuff like that, it goes up. But then he pointed to another book that I, I, I struggled in reading part of it, I will admit. And again, I don't recommend it necessarily to you, but it's called uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance by Eon uh, Kuliano. I don't I know how to pronounce. It's I-O-A-N is his first name. Eon Kuliano. But this book by Culliano, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, uh, he's obviously not, Culliano is not a Christian. But some of the things that he says in this book are really interesting. For example, he posits that the Renaissance was the height of the Western study of magic since the Greeks and Romans. You know, the Greeks and Romans practiced this. And of course, we all hear of the Renaissance as the restoration of classical learning, like the philosophy of the Greeks, of Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and others. Well, that's not how Culliano presents it. He said, yes, th th there was, sure, there was classical learning, but much more, it was a revival in the study of magic, of how to make change in society. And he sees this as a good thing. The Renaissance being a, a time when, when we have new forms of learning to change reality. Because in the Renaissance, men and women wanted to understand control. They wanted to know how to control nature, how to control man. And this form of control, though, at, up to through the Middle Ages, as it, as it began to grow, it didn't really take off until the, the, the time of the Renaissance. But when it did, he sees the church, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, as standing in the way of this new magic. So, if you think of the period during the Reformation, prior to the Reformation, you had a growing sense of, I don't want to say rebellion, but people who were tired of the way the church was. And there was pushback. And think of the pushback coming in two different ways. So think of it as, as two twins that are born out of the corruption of the church at the time. You have the good twin, the Reformation, and then you have the sinister twin, the Renaissance. Now, I know some of some are gonna say, but there were good Renaissance characters, right? I mean, the Renaissance is when you have, you know, people, at least in the latter Renaissance, uh, people like Shakespeare and Ben Jonson, and you have some of the great artists in Europe who come and, and so I will grant all of that. So I'm not despising those, but I am saying that this increase in openly occult magic was going on as well. And this is not just from Culliano. But first, let me just give you a quote that I think it really summarizes part of Culliano's point from his book. Uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, quote, the Renaissance is a rebirth 
of the occult sciences and not, as taught in schools, the resurrection of classical philology and a forgotten vocabulary, end quote. One more time. The Renaissance is a rebirth of the occult sciences and not, as taught in schools, the resurrection of classical philology and forgotten vocabulary. So when I saw that, I thought, oh my. There's a lot here. And again, even he thinks that this rebirth was a good thing. He celebrates it. And had I not heard this from other places before, I probably would have just said, oh, I don't, where's he getting this? I don't know. But I read this before by Dr. Gary North. Now, Gary North, the late Dr. North, he was well-known theonomist, Christian Reconstructionist, economist, and historian. As a historian, if you've not read him, I say, when it comes to history, he's really good. I mean, he's good as an economist in, in many ways, uh, a little bit hyper with some of his ideas, but as a historian, his book, uh, Cross Fingers, How the Liberals Capture the Presbyterian Church, is wonderful. But one of his books that didn't receive a lot of press is called Unholy Spirits. And Dr. North says the same thing as Ian Kuliano. He says that the Renaissance is a rebirth of occultism. So this is not some weird new idea. But Excuse me, Culliano also presents the idea that power during the Renaissance is going to shift from, you know, from the, the government and others trying direct control through force, you know, direct force through trying to tame people's control through desire. And then, get this, j just to, to kind of really finish it off. He talks about how during the Reformation that the Reformers, when, wherever the Reformation went, there was an improvement in modesty and morals. He talks about the extremely low-cut dresses and very short skirts, or the equivalent to skirts at the time, that women wore during the Renaissance. I mean, you think walking down the street in the South in the summertime is bad now? If you lived in Renaissance Italy or in Renaissance Europe, some of the quotes he has from some of the Protestants made me think, wow, we, we still live in, we're still pretty good here. <laughs> because, you know, he just, he talks about the way women dressed. It was scandalous. But then, when the Protestants would, when the Reformation would come to an area, you would see an improvement in morals. Now, he considers this Puritanism, and he sees it as a bad thing. So, you know, he, he wants the women to, to be free dress how they want. So, so think of this. Culliano supports the sexual revolution that happened in the Renaissance, hence the name of his book, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, because the way you can you capture people's minds, the way you grab and control people is not by force, but by Eros, the lust of the flesh. If you can enslave a man through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life, you've got it. You can make him do anything you want. And the Reformation changed that, but it didn't just change it in Protestant countries. He, Culliano presents here there being, he said, he says there's one Reformation and it happened in both Protestant and Catholic 
countries. Now we all know that there was division, there doctrinal division. You know, there's a lot of divisions and you know killings and wars and stuff like that. Of course, there was not denying that. But looking back, he sees both the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Counter Reformation. Both of them condemned divination. They condemned the things that Leviticus talks about. And he says that Rome, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and the Reformed all engaged in war, spiritual warfare. He didn't use that term. This is my summary. But spiritual warfare against the growing practices of Renaissance-era divination and sorcery that had arisen. So he, he sees the Reformation as being the rising up of a counter-magic movement. Not, not, don't think of Tyson's anti-magic, okay? That's, that's not what I mean here, but something where, they, where the Christians, just think of Christians of all sorts, who are standing now against Renaissance occultism. They're standing against the social, sexual revolution that came with the Renaissance. I'm going to tell you what, I'd never heard this story before. This is, this is something that I had not seen. I know that there have been some who talked about the revival of families. Probably the best book that I know of that talks about Reformation-era families is by Steve Osmond called When Fathers Ruled. And just talks about the, the, the Reformation and, and the restoration of family life in Europe. So you have these two different veins going on, but it is simply fascinating to me that the method of control that Satan has always used, where at least where he begins, which is the lust of the flesh is the way that magic would operate. And the Renaissance had opposition at the time through the rising of the, uh, the Protestant Reformation and then the Roman Catholics who joined with them. There's plenty you can say you know, negative about the different sides of Christianity there, but together they formed a powerful unity and a powerful tool against the works of the enemy. So, sadly, Culliano actually talks about how though that the Christian anti-occultism, um, anti in his view, and I don't mean that I agree with this, but that they led to an decline in, in the view of the supernatural in general. So I don't know how that stands. I've not done enough reading to, to have an idea here, but I do know that a lot of the work that went on in the Renaissance did find a way that, that there's a it, it's a somewhat easy path from Renaissance attempts at magic to the scientific revolution, which is many things about the scientific revolution we support, but even someone like Isaac Newton we know was not first and foremost a scientist as he was an alchemist. He was a scientist, but you know, alchemy, trying to turn gold, metal into gold, and so there's, there's a lot to Newton, and some of it was not good. So, there were many who, be, who started from this, this view of science as being negative, so then eventually that can lead back to what Tyson talked about with the, the supernatural versus natural view. And now we have an enemy who strives to keep us thinking that magic itself, that the supernatural barely exists. I mean, we're Christians, so we can't say it doesn't exist, but it barely exists. So what are we called to do? How does this apply to us? Well. Hopefully this can give you a different understanding of how you use the tools that we have because technology today is a form of magic. That's undeniable. These are gifts. We have to use them well. And they can, if, if, if left unchecked, they can harm 
us if we do not take exercise godly dominion. But if you understand that we live in a world that is supernatural, that God gives all things existence, and that you will be affected by magic whether you want to be affected or not, there will always be change that happens. Either you are submitting yourself to the wisdom of God. Another term for the wisdom of God, you could say the deeper magic. It is following His ways, the ways established from the foundation of the world, obeying Him, walking in the Spirit. You follow that, you will become more like God because He is working in you. On the other hand, there is the evil way, the way that the enemy is wanting, into which the enemy wants to lure you. So be cautious. Do not walk. As Israel was told in Leviticus, don't go to those sources. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Beware of bad magic. But remember the good news, the good story, the God spell, Old English for good news, gospel. Okay, gospel just means good spell. God's news, the story of Christ, is coming, living, dying, being resurrected. That's the story by which we live. And that is the spell that will change the world. And if you walk in that spell, you are walking in the path to true dominion the way he intends. I appreciate you all listening today. If you've made it this far, congratulations. And again, if you have any thoughts, please let me know. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.